Welcome to Keeping Athena Company. Hello, uh, my name is Athena Kabenu. I'm a comedian, writer, podcaster, and very good at making pineapple upside down cakes, as it happens as well. Is that a job? Well, me- what, uh, professionally making pineapple upside down cakes? Yeah. That, well, it is part of a job, but if that was your only business model <laughs> as a baker, you would probably soon go out of business. It probably wouldn't work, would it? But and I'm also a parent, um, and being a parent is lots of fun, but um, it takes a long time for children to be able to speak. And I've only just realised this, so I thought to keep my keep my brain ticking over. Um, every now and again, I invite a mate around to keep my company. That's a good concept of a podcast, isn't it? So welcome to my home to keep my company today, Ben Vanderbilt. Hello. Hello. How's it going? Yeah, really good. Yeah. Full disclosure, you've been here for about two hours already. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> We've already done my my, my, my podcast, but we will, we will pretend for the reasons of broadcasting that I have only just arrived. You just rocked up. Yeah, yeah. I have. Three hours late. No, yeah. no, no, no. <laughs> not at all. But you got your plantain, you got your tea. So we're all good. How are you? How's um, it going? Yeah, I'm really good. Yeah. I'm really good. Today is my first day of 2020 without my toddler. So I am I am uh, sat in admiration as you are multitasking as a self-employed performer with a child on your lap. I very rarely plan in advance of what I'm going to talk to people about. Mm-hmm. Very rarely because I think people just need to come around and chill. But I want to talk to you about improv. Okay. Because you are a master improviser. And I'm like a young, kind of like Luke Skywalker. (laughs) Before he was old Luke Skywalker. I'm like a kind of, hey, I don't believe in the force. Who needs it anyway? Oh, wait, maybe I need it. I'm in that stage at the moment. How long have you been doing improv for? So I've been doing improv for, uh, God, 15 years. 15 years? Oh, my God, do you plan anything? It must all be like that by this stage. Life is a a giant dance of improv. And have you, did you do the traditional kind of improv like UCB, Second City, all that stuff? Or have you gone down like a different route? Um, so I've never been to America and studied improv. I would love to do it. My way in was when I was at university, um, an improv group started off there. So um, so I went to Oxford and the traditional sort of comedy route there was to go through the Oxford Review. And the thing with the Oxford Review is that it either makes um, uh, Mitchell and Webb and the Pythons. I can never remember which of them went to Oxford and which went to Cambridge, but who cares? Yeah. Um, or when it's the wheel turns the other way, you get the world's most self-satisfied, pretentious assholes doing incredibly inaccessible comedy. <laughs> and that's what happened the year I was there. And someone set up an improv troupe and I was like, those guys, right. that's where the fun is. And we had these two teachers, um, one guy called Jim Grant, who was a Canadian philosophy master student with a brain the size of a planet. And our ch- my comedy, Ob- uh, my improv Obi-Wan um, was a guy called John Dick. Like immediately funny. Yes. And, they, and th- those two taught me like the, the fundamentals of, of improv. And we and because what was we were so lucky because the Oxford Review was so shit, and there'd never been improv at Oxford before. We put on a show in a little venue called the Wheat Chief, and our first show had a hundred people in, and we pretty much kept it. Yeah. So we we did that for two and a half terms. Like right, let's go to the Oxford, uh, let's go to the Edinburgh Fringe. Sorry, and we went up there as these cocky twenty year olds going. We're geniuses. We're obviously going to redefine what everyone knows as comedy. No one's ever seen the like of this ever before. And we got the most damning one-star review you've ever seen in your life, including the words, uh, uh, no artistic merit whatsoever. (laughs) 
that's like a, a kind of a, what we go through on a stand-up journey. You do your first gig and you smash mm-hmm. it and you think, oh my God, I'm going to be on live at the Apollo. And then you do your second gig and it's like, I'm the worst person yeah. ever. That's really interesting. What made you continue? Bearing in mind, you've got that reality check. Um, well, because, well, by then we'd had done loads of great shows beforehand. Right. And I think, I think whether it's improv or whether it's stand-up, I think all comedians have share the same sort of psyche in that you will have seen someone else doing it and will have been sat in the audience going, this is all well and good, but I can do it better. And also, it is about when you fail. When a, when a normal person dies on their arse on stage, they go, that was horrible. I am never doing it again as long as I live. And comedians, sadly, have um, <laughs> the psychological problem where they die on stage and are humiliated and they go, oh, I think I know what I did wrong. Yeah, it's, 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 it's ridiculous, but also... Um Amazing, because if we didn't do it, there'd be no laughter. Well, <laughs> so just be grateful. Um, there's, oh, there's also with improv, and I think more like I think stand-ups learn this, but they learn it um, through bitter practice and perhaps not knowing that it's essential to the craft. But failure is at the heart of improv. Oh, massively so, yeah. So we had so John Dick. One of the things he would make us do before every performance, we would get in a circle, and before we did any sort of warm-up games or anything, he had he had two. Um, like rituals one of which is essential if you want to be a good improviser one of them was that he would get some gold bond talcum powder and insist that we pass it around the circle and pop it down our pants um, and <laughs> it, it fizzed a little um, and that is essential to becoming a good comedian what year did this happen? Uh, 2005 okay so th- there's no me too going on here no, that's, quite... that's that is very 1970s behaviour yeah, yeah. Like, you know that, that used to happen but not anymore there is there is nothing sinister about it at all he just knew that your groinal areas could get a little bit musty during a performance he was looking looking after like yourself so you were, were not distracted so by being in the moment leather trousers and leather pants yeah. <laughs> a big part of of your improv group. yeah we, we were the boss hog improv group <laughs> Um, uh, the other thing was he, we would look each other in the eye and chant almost like a weird cult going, we suck and we fail and we love it. Yeah. And it's, it is a bit cheesy, but if you go on stage just going, I'm probably going to fuck up and I'm totally cool with it. And it makes you bulletproof. Oh, I say to a, bizarrely enough, like, you know, new comics ask you advice. And I always say, like, just similar to what you're saying, that like, you can't mm-hmm. be afraid to fail. Mm-hmm. Because if you get it done, then get it right. Do you know what I mean? Just get out there and... and chat your truth say whatever and then if it's not funny make it funny but you're not going to know it's not funny until you throw the mud against the proverbial wall that is um, is the audience yeah. so what's really interesting is I started doing improv maybe three years ago mm-hmm. and the first thing I thought is this is really hard and I thought well no it's going to be easy right I've been telling jokes for a couple of years now and it'll be fine and I think in many ways um, being an improviser and being a stand-up obviously are kind of like two opposite things because yep. in one you're trying to be funny and in one you're trying to not be funny so I'm interested because I guess that this means you started improv and then became like more of a stand-up? Yep. What was the pull away from improv and to stand-up? So, very practically, about um, two years after I started doing improv, someone from the group started up a stand-up night and went, do you want to do it? And I was like, yeah, I suppose so. Brilliant, you're booked in six <laughs> weeks' time. See you later. Always loved stand-up. Like, yeah. like you know, I grew, I grew up watching Eddie Izzard. And um, well, I was thinking about this. When I, when I was a little kid, so my, my dad used to play goon show tapes in right. the car on the way to stuff. And I, I listened, I insisted on the same show over and over and over again. And when I discovered... Like, the guy wrote 150 episodes, but when I discovered that there was, like, a second one, blew my mind. So I listened to that. I watched um, Billy Connolly loads. I watched um, 
oh god what's she called Barry Cryer and Willie Rushton who would do like double acts and then I, I remember being like 10 and watching Mark, the Mark Thomas comedy product right. not really knowing how significant that was and um, I, I saw Bill Hicks revelations when I was about 12 and again going like I love this but I don't know what it is you are reading off sort of like comedy kind of like king do you know what I mean like this is like if you want to learn how to be a comedian watch these guys which is really interesting is that because you come from a fairly culturally artistic household and you're just surrounded by the stuff or did you have your own curiosity um, bit of both. So my so my my mum and dad are not creative people. Can I, I shall stop you here. This is going to go on forever because my daughter wants to touch the lampshade. Right. She cannot do. It's too high. <laughs> so I can't I can't fix this. <laughs> this noise is now. I thought you were just turning to your daughter, going, "I cannot fix this." Yeah, and you know, even if I was to hold you up, you couldn't touch those lights, darling. They're too high. Well, reach for reach for the lampshade. You might get well. There's nothing in between. <laughs> yeah, that's a real first draft of an yeah. S Club Seven song. So, did you find were you introduced to them? Were you curious? So my my dad introduced me to the Goon Show, and oh, Victor Borger as well. Do you know about him? No, tell me. Oh my God! Look, at Victor Borger is the original Bill Bailey and Tim Minchin rolled into one. Really? He was a Danish guy who was huge in America from probably the 40s onwards and he was a like a, a classical level pianist but would just fuck about with it so like his sort of his smart ass one is that he would play happy birthday in the style of six different composers <laughs> but then he would do a thing of like um uh, there's two most famous ones as he would do his most, one of his most famous joke he would sit down and play something that sounded a little bit like the William Tell Overture like you know but it sounded wrong and he couldn't work out why and then he'd turn the music the right way up and then play it the correct way um, he did another one called um, Phonetic Punctuation where um, he was he, he his the 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 hook behind it was is that people aren't really understanding how theatre works because they don't hear the punctuation. So he would have noises for the punctuation, <laughs> like would be a comma and would be a full stop. And then he did like a famous Shakespearean speech with all these noises in it. And it's he like, sounds like a genius. He was a genius. He sounds like a genius. And he was like an alternative comic 40 years before they existed. So I would watch those videos to death. But then, yeah, Bill Bailey, Mark Thomas completely discovered myself because they were on it. Not Bill Bailey. Well, Bill Bailey, but, but Bill Hicks, Mark Thomas. I, they were on at like 11 o'clock on a Friday night. Yeah. So Friday night dinner in the Jewish household. My my mum would cook while I watched like uh, Ren and Stimpy were on on BBC Two at like six thirty. We'd sit down, we'd eat. Me and my dad would listen to either some comedy records or jazz records afterwards. Then mum and dad would go to bed and sneakily watch Euro Trash. The the less said about that, the better. And I would sit downstairs and watch it as well, going, "Oh god, I hope mum and dad aren't watching this again." And then there'd normally be like comedy specials on Channel Four. There used to be comedy specials on Channel Four, and I was I just remembered. Um, you mentioned that Friday night used to be big for comedy mm-hmm. Father Ted Far Show mm-hmm. Have I Got News For You um, yeah. used to be like from 6pm onwards there'd just be something funny on Ren and Stimpy as you mentioned yeah. The Simpsons on Channel 4 as I'll, well I'll tell you the other thing I watched and this only occurred to me like a couple of years ago is one of the very very first sketch shows I ever watched was The Real McCoy yes and I used to love Felix Dexter who sadly I never got to gig with yeah um, but he's like and I I'm trying to think like I can't think of many things before when that was on because that was like 91, 92 maybe definitely the 90s so I would say from the late 80s to like the mid 90s the real McCoy ran and I think that 
I can honestly tell you, everybody watched The Royal McCoy. Everyone. Everyone. And you would go to school the next day and you would like remember what happened like, and you'd talk about the sketches or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would have been a big part of people's TV schedule. As big as Grange Hill, yeah. and, you know, the press gang or something like that. That was, Real McCoy was definitely an introduction to me. Real McCoy and Desmond's, those were the two funny shows that I won. Like the next thing was the fast show. But I just remember thinking, this is some of the funniest shit that's ever been invented in the history of man. Like, and yeah. it, I couldn't even work out why it was funny. Yeah, a lot of the time, I, I'm trying to think when I first understood how jokes work like that. But to be fair to my mum and dad, like my, dad, my dad's a pretty funny person, uh, like with wordplay. And my mum and dad were part of um, a Jewish theatre group. Okay. Um, so they would put on plays and they would often put on a Jewish pantomime. And one Everything year, you're saying is making me so happy. Yeah. <laughs> why? Why have I not seen a Jewish pantomime? Um, because they're the only people I've ever seen put it on. <laughs> so this gets even better. You'll need a little bit of the lingo for this uh, to understand it. So um, a simcha is basically a party or a celebration. Okay. And so they put one on in. So in 1996, the Newcastle congregation were looking for a new rabbi. Um, and so they put on a pantomime called Four Rabbis and a Simcha instead of Four Weddings and a Funeral. And it was basically about a community looking for a new rabbi. And they had a whole, and it was sort of like a, a blind date set up in the pantomime. And the one that eventually won it in the plot was um, an Elvis impersonator rabbi. Um, I can't remember who my dad played in it, but my mum played one of the two ugly sisters. <laughs> you just got to prove you don't take yourself very seriously if you're a woman and you're playing an ugly sister. Especially not. Did you ever take part in any of their theatre productions? Mm, I... So the Tyne Theatre once put on a production of Fiddler on the Roof and basically recruited the entire Newcastle oh, Jewish standard. community. You're standard, not a Jewish theatre group if you don't put Fiddler on the Roof on it. Right, exactly. Once, right? No, 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 no. But that wasn't a Jewish theatre group. That was the Tyne Theatre, one oh, of the two right. big theatres. Excuse theaters. me, okay. Yeah, um, I didn't, but when I was... So I went to... Um, I went to a Jewish primary school and I was... It closed down when I left because they'd lost their best people. And... Um, not a joke. Actual facts. No. <laughs> But um, uh, my headmistress, who was this incredible... She sort of looked and walked around like the Trunchbull. She was fearsome, but she had an absolute heart of gold. And she would write um, adaptations of Shakespeare, but in her own verse. So she basically took the plot of like Midsummer Night's Dream and then put it in rhyming couplets. So when I was... uh, How old have I been? I've been seven. And she put... and, And my mate Dan played Puck and I was bottom... Um, and then a few years later, we put on a version of Aladdin, and I played Widow Twanky. In Aladdin? In Aladdin. The famous Widow Twanky who pops up in a... Widow Twanky is in Aladdin. Is it? Really? Yeah, Widow Twanky's Aladdin's mum. Yeah. Right. Is that true? Yeah. Are you taking a piss? No. Why do you think Widow Twanky is not Aladdin's mum? Because I'm not very familiar with these things. Yeah. Okay, sorry, no. In Obviously, in the original tale from A Thousand and One Arabian Nights, okay. there is no cross-dressing mother in it. But in, like, panto version, yeah. Okay, so I went to my first pantomime this year. So I'm really not au fait. Oh, mum. Kind of, and I only went this year because I've got friends who go every year and I've never been able to make it. But this year, I was like, I've got a daughter and I've got to take her to panto. Which one did you see? Um, well, it was a retelling on the, the nativity. So it was a... That's really, not a pantomime. It, but it was a pa- it was done in a panto style because actually it was about the birth of the king of the elves. Uh, but it turned out, uh, but it was Father Christmas who who's the impending birth. That was a twist. Right, so, I thought it was going to be going to like, and lo, the son of no. God has been born. Oh no, he hasn't. Oh yes, he has. No, 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 no. It was Judas most- comes on stage. He's behind you. Oh no, shit, no. Judas is the Easter story. Yeah, no, it was the most blasphemous shit you'll ever seen. It was mm-hmm. nothing to do with, with the actual story of Christmas whatsoever. It was wonderful. But the best thing.
thing about it was, so my daughter's what, um, she would have been uh, 13 months at the time. Um, and she loved it. She really, she oh, cheered great. when she was supposed to cheer. She was dancing to all the music. She was on my knee the whole time, standing up, waving whenever the music started. And at the end, the cast uh, ran through the middle of the kind of theatre to out the back door. That's how they exited the stage. And we were sat on the aisle and she almost jumped out of my hands to follow them. Oh, it was that's like, you know, she was just besotted. So I'm going to do it, but I don't understand. I, Panto. So Widow Twanky is Aladdin's mum. Mum. Are there any other things that Panto have done to just completely change stories that oh, I should know about? Gosh, like um, Cinderella. Like, um, I mean, generally, if if there is a hero, if there's a protagonist who is normally a young boy, then they will be played by a young woman. So Peter Pan is always played by a woman. Oh, yeah, I'm totally aware of the cross-dressing uh, yeah. thing, to the point where I would like to do Panto one day and do it in drag. Yeah. Like, I'm dying to do that. Well, like a RuPaul pantomime. Oh, yeah. That, I mean, that's basically what it is, right? So yeah. that's, that's what I'd love to do. Do you enjoy Panto? I used to love it. I've got a real vivid memory of going to a Panto, I think at the Sunderland Empire. And um, in the first half, some, I think like the, I think the bad guy with loads of his retinue came in behind one of them was like this, you know, this quite sluttered up woman. And she like, um, like turned to my dad and was like, oh, you're there and sat on his lap and started like twiddling with his hair and then went on stage. And in the second half, she came back again and was like, oh, my hero, I thought you'd left me. You gave my dad a huge snog. And I was like, this is amazing. That's the kind of thing, that thing that happens to a respectable adult when you're a kid and you just, you literally, like we were saying, we were still speaking earlier before the podcast, that would make you roll on the floor of laughter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's full on snog though. It's quite inappropriate. That couldn't happen in 2020. Could it? I don't know. Depends how you, how you um, sell it. But she, but no, I, so I love that. But I, it's got to be done well. So I, the only, t- no, it's not the only time. I've only ever seen Sir Ian McKellen on stage twice. <laughs> and once was in Waiting for Godot and once was playing Widow Twanky in Aladdin. Um, but, did he did he do it seriously? Was it his, his interpretation yeah. of, did he put pain and pathos? <laughs> <laughs> no, he was the best thing at Environment. It was cool because he could literally turn his hand to anything. So he did, you know, he's from Wigan, right? I so didn't he's got, know that. Yeah, he's, so he's, obviously he speaks now in a... RP Sir Ian McKellen accent because he got beaten out of him when he was at drama school but he can do a proper northern Lancashire accent uh, so he did so Widow Twanky was from Wigan when he did it and he was <laughs> and he was brilliant the, yeah. the heartbreaking thing was the rest of the script was terrible and there's a bit when um, Princess Jasmine and Aladdin are meant to be these star-crossed lovers at the end and they do this big like romantic speech with each other and everyone laughed because it was so shit and Ian McKellen had to improvise and basically tell the audience off for laughing at the romance. So it was sort of heartbreaking that the rest of it was so bad. It's amazing that they spent all the money on him, yeah. so they couldn't really afford to do like a right script, which is a shame. Yeah, um, it's like a football team spent spunking all their money on a star striker and then the rest of the youth team. Do you have any aspirations to act? I do. Well, I went to drama school. Yeah, okay. So, so is that something you'd still, like, harbour uh, a desire to do? I, like, I guess so. Like, I've not... The thing is, I haven't acted since I got good at comedy. And I think, you'll know this, being able to make a room full of 200 people laugh and hang on your every word gives you a confidence. Absolutely. But I am... <laughs> I went to drama school for three years and discovered that I'm better at being myself than I am at being someone was else. Was that what you did at Oxford? 
Uh, no, I went there after Oxford. Oh, okay. So you did it, went to Oxford. And what did, can I ask what you studied at Oxford? Modern history. And you went to drama. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, did you, I did, I did history and mm-hmm. I actually, just generally too, I wanted to be an academic. Because hmm. I was like, I can read, I can write, this, this is going to be fine. And then I realised how little academics got paid. Um, why did you study history? <laughs> Um, because it's because it's what I was good at and what I loved. Yeah. Like it's 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 a very old fashioned thing, but I genuinely didn't go to university to try and network or because I thought I mean there you know history law is not the most is not it's not the rarest of paths to go down, but I just genuinely loved it. Yeah. Do you still uh, partake in his, the historical study? Yeah. Still read loads oh, okay. of history books. Yeah. What's, yeah. what's the most recent history book you read? Um, oh. Not to be on the spot, or just one that springs to mind as something I mean, that really interested you. Um, oh man, I did read so well. No, I tell you what, it was brilliant author called John Higgs, um, who I enormously recommend. He wrote a book called uh, Watling Street. Do you know what Watling Street is? No. So Watling Street is one of the four old Roman roads that crisscross the United Kingdom, and Watling Street goes from uh, Dover all the way up to Anglesey in Wales. And he basically told the history of Britain um, by travelling along Watling Street and looking at the different things that had happened along there over the years. And it's an amazing book. Do you know that the other three roads are? One's got to be the A1. <laughs> uh, well, no, well, the Watling Street sort of goes over the A1 a little bit. So there's, there's basically one from Dover to Anglesey, one from the southwest up to the northeast, and I guess I assume one from like Aberystwyth to Norfolk, and I don't know where the fourth one is. Yeah, but that, that's really impressive. And I always, I've always believed that um, if people just studied history, that that's a really good way to be have critical thought. So yep. Everyone says like the mainstream media, that, but that mainstream media is it's the void of historical fact, and it's full of persuasion. We want you to think this way about something, so we're mm-hmm. going to just leave out these details, and we're going to put in these details. So to counteract that, just get the details yourself. Yeah. The, if you if people learn the history of that road, what they would learn about the UK would probably obliterate most of the political discourse that's going on in this country right now. That's well, negative. Yeah. Well, he wrote it in he wrote it in 2017 in a response to what happened with Brexit, oh, and I think yeah. part of it was he said it's like people people not knowing the history of these islands, not realizing that we are we are a mongrel immigrant people. It's yeah. just the nature. Any anything that was Britonic, so the people who were there before the Romans and Anglo Saxons turned up. They, they're not here anymore. They're not like the, the the nearest thing you can get to a pure blood Brit is an Anglo-Saxon, and there ain't many of them left. Yeah, and the concept—I mean, the concept of pure pure blood is like incredibly um, racist. Anyway, of course it is because there's, there's no such thing. But I always say that <laughs> she's angry because she's looking at you because there's only two pieces of plantain left, and she's thinking, "I dare you to eat the last two. <laughs> so like. Things like we want our country back, we mm. and are those two yeah. concepts are incredibly racist. Like, who are you and where what what, what where is your name written on this fine land? It's not written anywhere. It's like, oh if it's written somewhere, it's because you wrote it, because you overtook it from someone. Yeah. Um, well we well it's in like fascinating how um you go like so the history that most people will study, it's so politicised. Do you think about it? Like, what, what do we learn in school? We learn the Tudors and the Stuarts, which is a very... Uh, she's, the funny thing is she only wants to make noise whilst we're talking. Of course so she's, she's doing it on purpose. This yeah. is accidental. You know what you're doing, little one, don't you? Um, yeah, we learn about the Tudors and Stuarts, who, don't get me wrong, 
fascinating time, really, yeah. really important time. But we also we learn them and we learn causes leading up to World War Two. Yeah. So we basically learn fourteen eighty five to sixteen oh three and then nineteen twenty to nineteen thirty nine and guys nothing involving Britain happened in between then at all, <laughs> did right. it? And, the, and just to build on that, then what you do learn is incredibly biased. So like the Stuarts and the Tudors, mm-hmm. like violent, incestuous, um, uh, you know, mm-hmm. uh, bloodthirsty, uh, constant states of war, um, treacherous. Yep. But you don't really learn, that. It, you know, the, the way it gets presented to you is like, oh, this is normal behaviour. Yeah. yeah. This is just standard. And similarly, like when we talk about th- the things that happen leading up to World War II, it's very much like, um, it's not as... It's so they they make it so simple. It's like uh, Germany invaded Poland, and when we went to save the world, and mm-hmm. it's like so. It was so. It was also about protecting um, protecting colonial interests um, and maintaining maintaining an economic world order. Mm-hmm. Um, and as and the I I really hate the narrative that hate is probably too strong a word, but the narrative that kind of like the allies quote unquote are liberators of the world. What they wanted to do is they wanted to. To have control of the world, yeah. so they didn't liberate the world. They want control of, and and they have control to to this day. Um, the, I mean, the other the the other thing with it is as well as like, yes, the Nazis absolutely were the bad guys. They absolutely were, but. I think the British government in the 30s, as the, one of the reasons why they appeased them wasn't just because we didn't have the weaponry, it's because we're going, whoa, 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 they're making us look good. Like, because, and I, I, I think that's one of the reasons why Britain and Germany are in the places that they are right now, is G- Germany is a more progressive and better place it's to live right that, now yeah. because they've dealt with their history. They've had to, and we haven't. It's funny, I was speaking about this with Susie Steed, who was on the last podcast, because we were talking about how, even though even though Germany has its issues with, with far-right... My chin is in my daughter's mouth. It will stay there because... <laughs> and she's playing it like the kazoo. It's brilliant. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I love it. She's looking at you going, Mummy, you're talking about important political economic history. I'll have none of it. Yeah. Um, what was I saying? Right, and there's, so there's a far-right problem in Germany. In fact, across Europe, there isn't a parliament that probably doesn't contain at least one far-right representative, right? But you're absolutely right. Germany has reconciled itself with its past. There are laws that mean... Um, Things can't be said. Things can't be done. Um, it is. It is not. It is not the correct thing to deny the history of Germany in Germany. Why? Why would anyone want to deny it? It's horrific. It needs to be learned about so it can never happen again. Britain. Okay. You try and mention colonialism in a, in a comedy club. You know that isn't. Uh, there's a tipping point. If I got a five percent ethnic, uh, <laughs> if I got five percent non-white or non-white British identifying people, I can get away because that five percent of maybe a two hundred audience, if they laughed, it ripples. Right? Yeah. If it's all white. I'm fucked. I'll take my fee and going home. You know? <laughs> I had the weirdest thing, and this is so. I was doing a gig in uh, rural Lincolnshire, so you know, about as white British as you can get. Um, and I spoke, and there was a woman uh, there from the Falklands. So I, I, and she, she was really lovely, and I immediately ripped into her uh, about coming from like a like a bunch of rocks populated by puffins next to Argentina. And listen, maybe we should give it back. You know, is it really British? And it was, how can I put it? It's not the funniest riff I've ever done, but I find the notion of the Falklands being British absolutely it's, hilarious. It's hilarious. And, and one, the, the thing that I didn't realise in the context is that there are a lot of air bases around there that maybe people served in the Falklands War. But a guy in the front row called me a snowflake for it. And I was like, firstly, you're the one getting offended, my friend. And, 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 and okay, I've come along with my liberal metropolitan ways and assumed that Middle Britain will agree with me. But it, but, but it wasn't that. I just wanted to poke a bit of fun. Because the notion that somewhere 8,000 miles from here, 
is British is nonsense. And that nonsense. people should die for that. Yeah. And, and the biggest thing is that, well, the people people on the island want to be British. That's because they moved from Britain to there to bloody claim it. Like, yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't make any it doesn't make any sense. To um, be fair to them, well, I, like they did go, actually, I think you'll find that it's nearer to Chile than Argentina. <laughs> and I had a little check on Wikipedia and they were like, I was like, well, give it to fucking Chile then. The, the, the mad thing with it as well is, I thought of two other really interesting history books that I read recently. One is... Uh, the Silk Roads, which is by a guy called Peter Frankopan, that is basically gone. Um, uh, history has been too Eurocentric for well, forever, but this notion that Europe is the um, the axis on which the world turns is a very modern idea. And he took it. All, he basically tells history all the way back from two and a half thousand years ago, talking about the Silk Roads running through the Middle East, across the top of India, all the way up to China, and going, "This is where it is." Yeah, and we know this because we know historically. Even if we think about what we know about history, we know that Chinese people were were be, were technologically and scientifically advancing. 2,000 years before mm. Europeans were and we know that North Africans were doing it 4,000 years yeah. 4,000 years ago so it's 2020 mm-hmm. right now so if you in the if you did it in, uh, I think so, I, I, what I'm saying is completely wrong because I can't remember the exact timings but if you had the history of humanity in a day like uh, this European age would last like two seconds or yeah. something like that I'm, uh, the, 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 the proportions are wrong the, um, the thing I find really interesting because the, the other book that I really enjoy is this thing called um, The Age of Wonder which is all about the Enlightenment and I find fascinating because Europe, when Europeans explored the world they did two things that no other civilization did one of them good one of them bad the bad thing, as we all know, is that they were more rapacious than anyone else. And they had this notion of there had been empires before, but there hadn't been colonialism before. Like the Roman Empire, if you're into empires, sort of makes sense because it's all next door. Um, but, you know, turning up in the Caribbean and going, I think this is ours. Yeah. And I'm genetically better than you. You are, you are yes. probably about... They put a percentage on it. They were like, yeah, you're about 70% human. Yeah. You know, which, is, which is crazy. Which I mean, the Romans had the Romans and the barbarians, but I don't... It wasn't in the same way that that existed. I think it... European colonialism coincided with the notion... And the Enlightenment is all about white supremacy, isn't it? It's all about yeah. kind of scientific racism um, and... Well, uh, well, yeah, yes. I mean, some, some, some of it is, some of it... Well, well this is, this is the, 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 the contradiction at the centre of it, is that there are absolutely astonishing um, discoveries, you know, real scientific discoveries, the circulation of the blood and the, the moons of Jupiter and... Um, Oh God, I'm trying to dredge stuff up. I remember all that sort of stuff, but they use it to underpin, um, yeah, this notion of white supremacy. The fascinating thing with it is, in the same, in 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 the same way that you know, rock and roll was a bunch of white guys nicking gospel and blues music. What is the Enlightenment built on? It's built on the Renaissance. This is my favourite fact in all of history. What's the Renaissance built on? Well, obviously, it's the rediscovery of Greek and North African and Hebrew texts. It's white people stealing things from brown people. But more than that, my favourite thing is this. The best university... Will you tell me? where? You might know. Where do you think the best university in the world was in the 13th century? Mali. Nope. It's West Africa, though, right? Nope. Not West Africa. I mean, we might be going toe to toe on this, but like, yeah, no, we could do. Tell like, me, was what was is that was that the height of Mansa Musa's empire? Yeah. By the way, don't get me wrong, pretty Timbuk good. Too. So it's not okay. I'm interested now. Yeah, okay. it's Baghdad. Baghdad. Was, yeah, of course it was the House of Wisdom. Now I don't I don't know anything really about Timbuktu. 
Um, so maybe this university was like it, but Baghdad was an incredibly multicultural university. It was an Islamic state, but they were well aware that Christians and Jews and uh, other faiths around there at the, at the time could all contribute. Um, and here's the thing. In 1259, Genghis Khan's grandson ransacked Baghdad, destroyed the House of Wisdom... And arguably destroyed as you know is Islam as a civilizational force up until this very day, but all of those scholars ran away from Baghdad. They took all of their learning with them, and they went and hid in uh, Persia, and Syria, and Lebanon, and Israel, and Greece. And they took all that knowledge with them, and it slowly filtered into Italy in the 14th and 15th century. And that kickstarted the rena- Renaissance. So you don't get the Renaissance or the Enlightenment or the Industrial Revolution or space flight without Genghis Khan's grandson. And it's incredible. That's a good fact. Yeah. That's that's. That, yeah, that's a good fact, and uh, I had no idea. And that's the other thing too. We often bring the history forward a few uh, few centuries. We don't often look at Middle Eastern countries as post-colonial states, no. um, even though they were they were divided by straight lines. Like mm-hmm. so, we often look at the state of the condition of these countries in terms of their governance and their politics, and we go, "Oh, these terrible Middle Easterns, you know, with their patriarchy and this." And it's like, no, we we we, we did that. that. That was us. Do you do you know do you know about the story of Chir- Churchill's knuckles? No, I don't. You'll I say you'll love this. It'll make you very angry. Um, so. Uh, I can't remember exactly when it was. I presume it's after World War One. But when Churchill and the other European leaders were dividing up the Middle East for the 15th time, uh, they were doing, like you say, straight lines with rulers. And at uh, one time, Churchill's knuckles got over the edge of the ruler. So I can't remember which country it is, but there's a border that goes straight line, ba-dum, ba-dum, ba-dum. And someone basically went, Winston, you've messed up that border. Oh, well, it doesn't really matter. Anyway, lunch... <laughs> I'm I mean, it's horrendous, and yeah. it's putting together people that to this day are at war with each other uh-huh. because these are not natural countries, and then they installed leaders who are despots, um, and still and there to this day. But That's on really- the plus side, it does give us some great reports on the Daily Show. So. <laughs> some of the greatest monologues, yeah, <laughs> would never have been invented if we hadn't messed up the Middle East. Um, ben, uh, let's let's just leave it there. This is this has been one of the most fun and informative and educational ones I've done. Good. I could talk about this stuff all day. Because um, I like history, but what I like is I'm not very knowledgeable about things you're knowledgeable about. I'm very much black shit. So like, <laughs> if it's, unless it's which is still vast, which is still vast and diverse so and important. But I don't I haven't read widely about like Eastern history, for example, even like South American history. So I, that's yeah. something that I need to do more of in life. Well, well and the thing is, I mean, like Eastern history, we're talking about Japan and Korea and China they had very sophisticated societies back when we were, you know, two and a half thousand years ago. Way more advanced than the Greeks and the Romans, like you said. And, boy, yeah, no, and, the, and black history is something I'm only, I'm only just getting a hold of. And I want to know all about the history of um, uh, rebellion and revolution against colonial rule. But what I'm really interested in is pre-colonial Africa. Like, and th- there was a surprising amount on uh, on that, and I would recommend uh, Robin Walker. Robin Walker, his his books are expensive. Uh, right. I, I can't recommend him highly enough to talk about to talk about kind of pre-colonial Africa. Let's let's wrap this up by me saying thank you for coming. Any final thoughts? Uh, yes. Well, I'm going to amnesty. I'm going to do uh, I'm going to do a dirty horrible plug, <laughs> and then I will I will I will add a final a final thought. Get out your system. 
Um, so uh, I'd like to plug two things. Firstly, uh, my podcast, which I'd love you guys to listen to. It's called Worst Foot Forward, where me and my co-host Barry McStay, who is a playwright uh, and an actor, we pick uh, a topic each week and talk about the world's worst version of it. So like heroic failure. We've talked about the world's worst wines, professional wrestlers, knights, all sorts. And we've had like academics on it, magicians, burlesque dancers. Uh, so you can find Worst Foot Forward anywhere. I'm also doing a uh, a show at the Vault Festival in London on Tuesday the 18th and Wednesday the 19th of February at half past six. It's called Fable Maker. Uh, Athena's daughter will not be coming and it is an improvised hour of stand-up storytelling. You'd be extraordinarily welcome there. Thank you so much for coming to keep my company. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you. And I'm going to eat my last bit of plantain. Oh. Thank you, Ben, for coming round. Oh, it's so nice to chat to my friends and get to know them a little better, even when they're, even more so when they're an expert in things that I love, in this case, history and improvisation. So, oh yeah, what a pleasure. Do catch his podcast, Worst Foot Forward, like he told you, it's a great podcast, and find him at the Vaults Festival in London. So I'm competing with my daughter who is playing with her electronic devices. Um, <laughs> well, let's get this done, because um, I've got to keep her company. I think she's getting a bit impatient. Catch Ben uh, doing his thing at the Bot Festival and on his podcast. My name is Athena Kabenu. I'm a stand-up comedian as well as, as well as a podcaster. So find out what I'm up to on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. My handles on those platforms are just my name, Athena Kablenu. You've been listening to Keep It Athena Company. Do check out the next episode. I'm not going to tell you what's happening, but it's a surprise. It's going to be a big one and I can't wait to record it and send it out to you. Okay, so thank you for your support. Thank you for listening. Like, share, comment, do whatever you do with podcasts that you like. It's all appreciated and we'll catch up next time. <laughs>